We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 because it's like a complete thought. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14, reading through verse 19. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Let's pray. Father, speak to us today for your sake and our sake. I do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our focus today is verse 14. We won't get past that. And that verse begins with, remind them of these things. And with these words, Paul was urging Timothy to remind the believers of the important truths found in verses 8 through 13, just preceding that statement. However, since you heard Mark's teaching on verses 8 through 13 just last Sunday, and I thank you, Mark, for doing that, I won't remind you of what these verses say. You've only had a week to lose those thoughts, so they're probably still in your mind. However, we will talk about four important truths that we ought to remind ourselves of. And as we go through them, I hope you'll get the picture that we should be reminding each other of these same four truths. The idea of reminding each other of certain truths is not unique to Paul or to Christianity. It's used by parents in raising children. I was of the mind that we probably would have to tell our children a thousand times before they got some of the things that we wanted to get across to them. School teachers use this method to teach a subject like math. It's called repetition. Or when preparing students for final exams, that's called review. It's just reminders. Businesses use it in their advertisement. I don't know about you, but... uh, I'll ask the question, how many times have you seen the Call Sam advertisements? Police use it when they give you a warning instead of a citation. It's a reminder to slow down or obey the laws. And I could go on, but I think you get the point. For Christians, for us, the same principle is essential in relation to our thinking about God, 
and in relation to living a healthy, a maturing Christian life. Why? Because we face many temptations, we face many demands and distractions in the course of a day that too easily divert our attention away from what we ought to be paying attention to. And that often results in thinking and doing things contrary to godliness. And so reminders are a helpful tool in the battle to keep us thinking as we ought to think and doing what we ought to do. For Christians, reminding is a personal activity. I used to carry in my pocket when I first started pursuing God in this way. I had a window washing business at the time and I would carry in my pocket a three by five card cut a little smaller so it would fit in and I ended up putting uh, scotch tape on it so when it got wet it wouldn't bleed and I couldn't read what was on it. But I carried it in my pocket and I had a list of things that I was praying for and a list of scriptures that I was reviewing and a list of uh, things in my own life that I was working on and that was my reminder. Eventually, uh, when I sold off and got involved in being a pastor, I put that same thing on the dashboard of my car so that when I was driving someplace, I could look at it and be reminded of those things that to me were important and I needed to put into my memory. So for us Christians, reminding is a personal activity. But it's also a group activity. We need to be reminding each other of truths. We listen to stories. We're talking about life with each other. People say things. They say things that give away their view of God, or at least their momentary view of God, or their feelings about the Christian life, or other things of that nature. And we can remind them about important truths. Sometimes we are the ones who need those reminders. And part of doing my job, being a pastor or a teacher or a counselor, is to remind people of truth. So, as I stated earlier, Mark already talked to you about verses 8 through 13, and I'm not going to review them, even though that's what Paul is urging Timothy to do, remind the church of those truths. I want to instead remind you of four truths that I have found very helpful in my own life. And I believe they can be helpful in our life as a church and in your life as an individual believer. These are reminders because you've heard all this before. And as we go through them, my encouragement is to Hold on to a list like this. Remind yourself of these things until they are so implanted in your mind that you get up knowing them. You get up, they're just natural in your thinking. And be prepared to remind each other of these things because we all go through challenging times and we need those kinds of reminders. The first truth is God is perfectly good. 
And because of this, we can trust him implicitly to always do what is right and good. God is perfectly good. However, when life turns hard, when circumstances turn against us, when people don't treat us the way we think they ought, when temptations seem to overpower us, and when sickness overtakes us, our tendency is to blame God or think of God as having failed us in some way. And it's in those moments that we don't think or see God as perfectly good. And this kind of response to our circumstance degrades our view of God. It lowers our view of God. And degrading our view of God for any reason is foolish for us as believers. Because a low or unworthy view of God feeds distrust of God. It motivates backing away from God instead of drawing near to him. It encourages taking matters into our own hands and doing things our own way instead of God's ways. And it results in giving only partial or selective submission and obedience to God. And all those things detract from, work against godliness and the Christian way of life. You see, the truth is, our view of God, be it worthy or unworthy, and it works in both directions, by the way, our view of God, be it worthy or unworthy, powerfully influences our trust in God, our adoration of God, our reverence for God, and our humble submission to God. For example, the more you think of God, the more highly you think of God, the more you will want to trust him, and the more you will want to live according to his will and word. Now, the question is, can God be trusted? Is he indeed perfectly good? Well, the Bible says he is. We read in 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, we hold the Bible to be true, and we choose to live by what is in the word of God, and this is in the word of God, And this tells us that God himself is total light. There is no darkness in him. There is nothing less than good in God. And we read in James 1.17 that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing given, every perfect gift. Often do we think that God is not giving us something that's so good or so perfect, and we could improve on that. God is perfectly good. And though I am just as human as you with Similar passions. I hope you don't have all the ones I've had to fight. Foolish thinking. I hope you don't think as stupidly as I have. 
and sinful ways, it is my experience over these years that God is indeed perfectly good and completely trustworthy. For some reason, I can't give you the reason why, many years ago I made the decision, made the commitment to myself never to entertain any disparaging or low or unworthy thoughts about God or to utter words of that nature. My thinking was if something was going terribly wrong, I would never blame God. I would never think that God was failing. The first person that I would look at would be myself to see if I was contributing to this problem. If I wasn't, fine, and I had no other explanation, fine, I would leave it at that. That was my decision. I have never regretted making that decision. And my encouragement to you is make that same kind of decision. Choose to believe and to live and to think and to speak as God being perfectly good. To help us maintain a proper and honorable and a high view of God, we need to keep the truths of, say, 1 John 1.5 or James 1.17 firmly implanted in our mind and securely held in our heart. It has to be something that is so natural to us. These thoughts, these truths just are always at the top, always influencing us. And we can do this by reminding ourselves and reminding each other that God is indeed perfectly good, regardless of what the circumstances seem to imply. The second truth is, godliness is the only path to the abundant life. Godliness is the only path to the abundant life. We're prone to think that an abundant, happy, fulfilling, good, and satisfying life is made up of God's ways, godliness, and some of the world's ways, combined with a few fleshly ways, a bit of selfishness, and maybe even one or two of the devil's ways, just plain sin. We hear this uh, especially, uh, older people don't say these things, younger people do, Probably older people are smart enough not to say them, especially in church. But younger people would say, you know, Christianity just isn't fun. We're we're missing out on all the good times. I used to believe that. And I wanted to have fun. Who doesn't want to have fun? And what I believed was that Christianity was a deterrent to fun, not the path to joy and true happiness. And as adults, my guess is, we are prone to think the same thing. The point is, is that we tend to believe that God, God's ways and living a godly life are not enough. And so to get what we think is a better life now, we tend to believe we must add in a few things that are not of God or of God's ways or of godly living. We just want to kind of Fill in where God's falling short, you know, where his ways don't quite satisfy. But here again, if we turn to God's word, we find the truth concerning the path to the abundant life. And you read this earlier, doing worship, Psalm 1611. 
you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It took many years to go from believing that I had to have some of the world, some of my selfishness, some of the sinful ways that the devil offered. I had to have those as part of my life in order to have a fulfilled and satisfied and happy life. It took a number of years to go from that point to see and experience the reality that God alone is enough. That he is all that we need. That he does satisfy. That there is tremendous value, comfort, security in inner peace because it comes from God and joy which comes from God. And a lot of things that I valued in years past don't even attract me anymore. We also read in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus himself said, the thief comes only, only, notice that word only, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's his sole purpose. I know he's selling us a bill of goods that seems so attractive. It's as if he's here to make our life what God can't make it, fun, exciting, enjoyable. An, an everyday experience at Cedar Point, you know. That's what he's here to offer us, we sometimes think. But the truth is, he's only come to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I acknowledge that there are frequent and numerous temptations to add some of the world's ways, some of our fleshly ways, and some of the devil's ways to the Christian life in order to make life seem sweeter or happier or more satisfying. But the reality is these temptations, even when they come from within, and I've had my own ability to tempt to myself, these temptations are lies that if followed will only add to our discontent and unhappiness. And they will only make life harder on their own lives worse. Speaking of reminding ourselves, for some period of time, I would guess a couple years, I reminded myself on a regular four or five times a week basis that there is no love in immorality, only selfishness. Maybe a lot of pleasure in it, may be very attractive at times, but there is absolutely no love in immorality, only selfishness. So how do we fight these temptations? By reminding ourselves day by day and reminding each other as often as is needed that godliness is indeed the only path to the abundant life. There is no other option. The reality is, God's abundant life is the only life that truly and lastingly satisfies. It gives us a true and lasting sense of security. If you want true security, if you want to have a heart-calming sense of security, 
pursue the abundant life, pursue godliness. God's abundant life is the only life that gives us true contentment and builds within us inner peace and provides a joy that circumstances or people cannot take away. And godliness is the only way to get this abundant life. Third truth. Changing what is in your heart brings about a far greater good than changing your circumstances. Let me say that again. It's a little bit longer. Changing what is in your heart brings about a far greater good than changing your circumstances. We tend to believe that we would be less sinful and more godly, less angry and more morally pure, less frustrated or upset and happier, less worried or fearful and more content, less self-centered and more loving, less self-ruled and more trusting of God if, and this is an important if, if our circumstances were different. In other words, we tend to believe our circumstances drive our thoughts and attitudes and words and behavior. And we buy into this lie, and it is a lie. We buy into this lie because we would rather blame our circumstances than face the reality that the driving forces of our behavior are inward and not outward. This kind of self-deception, this kind of denial of reality is so prevalent that Jesus took the time to address it. And here are just two examples of what he himself said. From Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he says these words, For from within, out of the heart of men. He didn't say based on the circumstances around people. No, he said from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Now, he might not have gotten everything he could on that list, but maybe time was a factor, or he figured we wouldn't remember it all anyway. But that's a pretty comprehensive list. From within these things proceed. They're not the result of our circumstances. They're the result of who we are inside. And he said, all of these evil things proceed from within, and that's what defiles us. And then in Luke chapter 6, 44 to 45, he puts it into an analogy. For each tree is known by its own fruit. In other words, what is seen on the outside is determined by what is on the inside. So whatever fruit you see on a tree is determined by the kind of tree it is, the life that is inside the bark. It's not the place it's planted, or the farm that it's in, or the field that it's in, or the weather that it experiences and endures. It's the life that is inside the tree. That's what determines the fruit that we see. 
For men do not gather figs from thorns. We're not that foolish. We don't go up to a thorn tree and hope to get figs. We know better. We understand the, the reality of nature. Nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Jesus made, I'm just going to take an aside here. Jesus made the point about how capable we are to look at a sunset or a sunrise and determine the weather. But we won't even look at ourselves and determine who we are, what we're like. We have this ability. We don't lack for the skill. We just need to take that skill that we use in other areas and apply it to ourselves. Verse 45 from Luke chapter 6. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart. My point is this works both ways, by the way. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good regardless of the circumstances. And the evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Once again, the point is circumstances do not make us think, speak, and act more godly or less godly. They simply prod or urge into action who we are on the inside. In other words, circumstances simply call forth a response. That's all they do, is they call forth a response from us. And our response is determined by what is in our heart. And what is in our heart is made up of who we trust, who or what we rely on to feel safe and secure, what we believe, value, fear, and desire. That's what is in our heart. Now there is no doubt that circumstances can have either a positive or a negative effect on our lives. This doesn't mean circumstances don't matter. If a lion is starting to come and chase you, you should get out of there. That, that would be a wise thing to do. <clears throat> so yes, circumstances can have an effect on our lives. Sickness, a crippling disease, a car accident, other things. Yes, circumstances can definitely affect us. There is no question about that. And I'm not trying to imply that circumstances don't have an effect on us. And there is no doubt that we prefer the positive effects over the negative. We would prefer good circumstances. Yet good or pleasant or enjoyable circumstances do not make a pure heart and a godly Christian. They only provide relief from the kind of circumstances that reveal either the purity of our heart or the impurities that are in our heart. This is often used by counselors in relation to anger. We go into the counselor and we say, my spouse just makes me so angry. And ultimately, if the counselor is going to help you, the counselor has to help you to see, convince you that no, it's not your spouse that makes you angry. Yes, your spouse probably does things that are frustrating, hurtful, disappointing, messes up the relationship. And, and it would be nice to have a better spouse. All that's true. But it isn't the spouse that makes you angry. You're the one who chooses to respond in an angry way. It's what's in you that generates the anger. 
And yet we still want to believe that if I just had better circumstances, I'd behave better. You know, if my kids weren't the way they are, my job wasn't the way it was, if people didn't drive on the road the way they do, if my spouse would just be a little bit different, life would be better. I would do better. I would be better. I wouldn't have to say the things I say or get angry or frustrated. That's all a lie. See, God places far more value and emphasis on changing who we are on the inside because it is who we are on the inside that determines our response to the circumstances around us. And so he places far more value and emphasis on changing who we are on the inside than changing our circumstances. I really appreciated, Barbie read to me while we were headed out to Arizona, a uh, portion, small portion from the ladies' Bible study. And uh, the, the author of the study pointed out something that I had never thought about, and that is that Paul never prayed for a change of circumstances, according to the scriptures. He, changed, he prayed for a change in the person or strength for the person or something for the person that had to do with who they were inside, not had to do with their circumstances. Now, if you don't believe me that God is far more focused on changing us on the inside than changing our circumstances, just consider these two scriptures alone. Just these two, James 1, 2 to 4. You've heard this over and over again. This is just a reminder. Consider it all joy. Where does, consider it all joy. That's something that has to come from inside of us. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I thought about that scripture a number of years ago, and I thought about it a lot. Do we just psych ourselves out? Do we just pretend we're joyful when we're hurting, frustrated, angry? When we like things to be different, is that what we're supposed to do? No, the reality is you won't truly count a joy unless you value the outcome. And that's an inward change. Once you start to value being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, more than changing your circumstances, you will count it joy when the circumstances are taking you in the direction of bringing about perfection and completeness and lacking in nothing, spiritually speaking. But you have to value that. That's an inward perspective. That's an inward value. That's an inward belief. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. We exalt or we rejoice in our tribulations. It's just really the same thought, just a different guy doing the writing. But we exalt or rejoice in our tribulations knowing that In other words, we're aware of the outcome and we value the outcome, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. So two questions. Do you believe life would be better 
And you would be more godly if your circumstances were different? Are you more committed to changing your circumstances than changing what is in you in order to respond more godly to your circumstances? I'm urging all of us to regularly remind ourselves and remind each other that changing what is in our heart, who we are on the inside, is far more important and far more valuable than changing our circumstances. And the reality is, without changing on the inside, you will never, ever experience the abundant life God wants you to experience in this life. Fourth truth, love according to the principles and ways of love. Love according to the principles and ways of love. Our tendency is to love those around us according to the extent of our willingness to love, and that's determined by how selfish we are, or we will love those around us according to the way we are being loved, which is based on how we're being treated, or how at least we perceive we're being treated. I want to remind you of what you've heard me say many times before. Love has its own unchangeable standards and ways. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Love has its own unchangeable standards and ways And so when you compromise or abandon love's standards and ways, the only possible outcome is to say and do things that are unloving. Once you move away or compromise the standards and ways of love, you're only left with doing what is unloving. And not that you need reminding of this, but let me remind you, love standards and ways are not a human invention. Some person didn't come up with this. This wasn't Aristotle's or Socrates or, you know, whoever, the most intelligent man in the world, Solomon's idea. This was God's creation, God's invention, God's doing. And that is the very same God who is perfectly good who shows us the path of life and who leads us into the abundant life. However, you know, could God be wrong about love? Could he be? The interesting thing to me is that God not only set the standard and ways of love, he practiced those standards and ways himself in spite of how he was being treated. And again, this is a scripture you know really well. But this is a scripture that makes my point. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in rebellion against him, while we were still telling him we didn't want him and we didn't want his ways and we didn't like all the things he required and we wanted the devil's ways and the world's ways and the way of our flesh, 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he lived according to his own standards and ways, regardless of how he was being treated. And having set the example of loving according to love's standards and ways, he then turns around and urges us to do the same. He urges us not to compromise or abandon the standards and ways of love, regardless of the behavior of those around us or toward us. And just one statement from Jesus to reinforce this truth comes out of Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, I say to you who hear. By the way, there was a lot of people who won't hear this. And some of us might even be in the church. Might even be believers. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. See, it's not, love is not dependent on how we're being treated or what is going on around us. It's dependent on the standards and ways of love established by God himself. Who practiced those same standards and ways? Now, I fully understand that loving according to the standards and ways of love is easy to talk about, yet not so easy to do. The reality is, and I've certainly experienced this in my own life, loving like this goes against our self-interest. It goes against our desires to feel safe and secure. It goes against our longing to be loved the way we want to be loved. You have to give up things to love like this. God had to give up his son. He had to give up protecting the well-being of his son. He had to be willing to allow people to falsely accuse and say all manner of evil things about his own son, torture him, put him to death. And while he's hanging on the cross, say, you know, if if he was really God's son, God would be here to protect him. And if he really was God, he could get down himself. From a human perspective, and I acknowledge that this is true, from a human perspective, from the fleshly perspective, loving like this is more costly to self than most of us want love to be. So what are we to do? Let us commit to reminding ourselves day by day and reminding each other as often as is needed That whatever is less than love is selfishness. And let us encourage one another to love according to love standards and ways, regardless of the circumstances or the people involved. And yet, as we remind each other, let us also support one another, because this is not in our nature 
our human fleshly nature. This is not an easy thing to do. So let us support one another, even as we're reminding each other. And let us use patience and tenderness when exhorting and encouraging each other to love according to love. Four truths, four things that I have found very helpful in my life to remind myself of over and over again until these truths were so implanted. I just get up in the morning knowing them. What I hope you get from today is to realize that reminders are helpful tools in the battle to keep thinking as we ought to think and doing what we ought to do. You can't just hear a teaching once, read a book once, look at a scripture once and walk away from it and think you have it. You have to go over it again and again and again. That's where pondering and meditation comes in. I suspect one of the reasons David became a man after God's own heart is because in spite of the sins he committed, he spent many years pondering the word of God. Just read Psalm 119. That is just a reflection of his mindset and his reminding himself over and over again of truths that he needed to know. So may we use reminders in our own lives. But also, I'm encouraging you to reuse reminders with one another. We're going to eat together today after the service. We're going to be talking about stuff. We're going to hear things said. Let us use reminders with each other for our good, for the spiritual health of our church, and for the glory of God in our personal lives and in our church life.